I saw my first stage play when I was five years old. Our small town theater company did a production of Fiddler on the Roof with an all-Gentile cast. No one had explained a play to me and I was completely baffled. Why was my dentist on stage pretending to be a Russian milkman? Why was the local Methodist minister calling himself Laser Wolf? Then when my dentist tried to pull his milk wagon, the handle sliced his hand wide open. Blood spurted out all over the cardboard village of Anatevka. Jesus Christ! Screamed Reb Tevya uncharacteristically. I watched my dentist, who'd caused me so much pain, slowly bleed out on stage. And I wondered, is this part of the show? Because if so, I'm coming back tomorrow. In this week's podcast, we visit New York's theater district. And for once, I don't have to travel anywhere. I live smack dab in the middle of it. Every year, 9 million tourists come to my neighborhood to see a Broadway show. And that Broadway show is The Lion King. All they want to see is The Lion King. This is the first and probably the last play these people will ever attend. As a result, they have absolutely no idea how to behave in a theater. Families talk throughout the entire show, they bring picnic lunches, and during the big musical numbers, they stand up in the audience and tape it. All of this has made The Lion King the most successful thing in the history of stuff. The play has grossed $6.2 billion, more than any movie or TV show ever. It took me 24 years, but I finally got tickets to see it. It was okay. It reminded me of my favorite line ever on The Simpsons. It wasn't said by Homer or Krusty or even Lenny. It was uttered by a character named Man Number 2. He was watching a play in an Albuquerque theater and said, This is better than a movie? What? Mind you, I don't hate all Broadway shows, just a very small, vast majority of them. It's my Aunt Rose. Hi, Aunt Rose. Michael, I have been listening to your radio show. It's a podcast. And every week is just, I hate this, I hate that. What? Can you talk about something you like? Aunt Rose, if I talked about things I liked, you wouldn't be on the show. Oh, come on. I don't even have an Aunt Rose. The truth is, I actually like lots of Broadway shows. I enjoy a great musical comedy and the dramas of Martin McDonough. I think the plays of Tennessee Williams and Eugene O'Neill are almost impossible to screw up. And I love Andrew Lloyd Webber. Everything he's done, especially Cats. I love Cats. One of the best things about not having kids, besides everything, is that you don't have to see children's theater. But I like that too. We recently attended Sesame Street Live at Madison Square Garden. A guard asked, Do you have a child with you? I said, No, I'll grab one on the way out. We are permanently banned from that venue. But kitty shows are great. They're colorful, upbeat, and really, really short. It's an odd paradox of theater that a man will pay hundreds of dollars to see a show and then he cannot get out of there fast enough. The best news a guy can read in a program is this show will be performed without an intermission. You want proof? 
Currently, the hottest play on Broadway is a musical called Six. It's 80 minutes long, including 10 minutes of the characters discussing how short the show is. Tickets are going for $500. My dream is to do a show where the curtains open and then they close. Boom! You're in and out of there in three seconds. I'm guessing I can charge 800 bucks a head. The other thing I love about children's theater is that every show ends with the confetti cannon. Everyone! <laughs> confetti and streamers blast out, the kids go nuts, and you know the show is over. I wish Broadway dramas did this. A streetcar named Desire. I have always relied on the kindness of strangers. Death of a salesman. Nobody dast blame this man. The problem with modern drama is you have no idea when it's over. A character says, I think I'll take that cup of coffee. The lights slowly dim and the audience sits there in panic. Is it over? Maybe it's another intermission. Do we clap? I'll give it one clap. It's nerve-wracking. As you might guess, my biggest beef with Broadway is modern dramas. They're long, they're depressing, and you have no idea what they're about. Take Tom Stoppard's The Coast of Utopia. This was a trilogy of three-hour plays discussing why there was no great literature written in Russia between the years 1833 and 1866. That's the plot for nine hours. When the show ended, I fled to the lobby like the place was on fire. There stood the show's author, Tom Stoppard. My wife said, Would you like your picture with him? I said, No, I would like to punch him in the nuts. Naturally, this pretentious, incomprehensible play went on to win more Tonys than any other drama in history. That's the kind of show that wins the Tony for best play. There was Red, in which Mark Rothko discussed his methodology for abstract composition. There's proof where two people try to prove a paradigm-shifting theorem in higher mathematics. And then there's Copenhagen, where Niels Bohr meets Werner Heisenberg to discuss quantum physics. The underlying tension of the play is, is Heisenberg a Nazi, or is he undermining Nazi efforts with bad research? It's Heisenberg's uncertainty principle applied to Heisenberg himself. Wow! Two years after the play came out, Heisenberg's diaries were released, and they showed he was a Nazi. No uncertainty at all. He was an Adolf Hitler-loving, Mel Gibson-agreeing-with, Nazi bastard Nazi. By the way, a few years after Copenhagen, the Tony Award for Best Play went to Oslo. That only leaves a few more Scandinavian capitals to make boring shows about. Stockholm, Helsinki, and Reykjavik. I've got dibs on Greenland's capital, Nook. Nook! Now at the Neil Simon Theater. Hey, Josh Perillo, producer of What Am I Doing Here with Mike Reese? And before we continue the show, I just wanted to talk to you a little bit about Noom. Noom, which I'm sure you've heard of, uh, uses the latest in behavioral science to empower people to take control of their health for good through a combination of psychology, technology, and human coaching on their platform to help millions of users meet their personal health and wellness goals. A lot of people face pressures to change themselves to fit other people's expectations. And the more freeing solution is to find things that work for you. So 
you know, Noom is different because it understands that everyone's weight loss journey is unique. And what works for someone else doesn't mean that it'll work for you. And that's why Noom's approach adapts to your lifestyle. It's flexible. It focuses on progress and, per- and not perfection, allowing you to work towards goals at a pace that's comfortable for you. It's, it's an, an adjustable, I use it actually, and it has this adjustable meter where you can, you can, you can make progress super fast or you can take it, you know, a little bit slower if you want to. Noom, Noom Weight makes it easy to start your weight loss journey and stay on track with personalized lessons to help you gain confidence and practical knowledge, one-on-one coaching, and a cognitive behavioral approach that teaches you how to be mindful of your habits. 75% of Noom Weight users finish the program, and more than 60% of the of those users uh, that engaged with the program kept the weight off for a year or more, which is just, it's unheard of. So start building better habits for healthier long-term results. Sign up for your trial at Noom.com slash believe. Again, that's Noom, N-O-O-M dot com slash believe, B-L-E-A-V. Back to the show. Of course, you don't have to be pretentious to win the Tony, just as long as you're dull. A few years ago, the winner was Harry Potter and the Magic Doorknob or some goddamn thing. In that show, Harry Potter is 40 years old and he's a total dick. It's a five-hour play in two parts and I've yet to meet anyone who didn't fall asleep during part one. Only one comedy in recent memory has won the Tony for Best Play. It's by Christopher Durang, who may be the funniest person to come out of Yale since Dick Cheney. The play is called, get this, Vanya and Sonia and Masha and Spike. Get it? It's three Russian names and then a not Russian name. I'm laughing already. Then the play began and I stopped. But not the audience. They were told by the New York Times that this show was hilarious, so they laughed at every single line. I'd like a cup of tea. (laughs) Herbal or regular? Regular. (laughs) Oh, really? I'd have guessed herbal. Suddenly, I felt a hand on my shoulder. It was my wife. I didn't realize I was now standing up in the theater, about to ask the crowd what the hell they found so funny. Tony Award-winning musicals are a little more reliable, but I was still baffled by Dear Evan Hansen, a show loved by teenage girls and 70-year-old theater critics. The hit musical flopped so badly as a movie, Hollywood critics wondered what New York critics saw in it. I wasn't enjoying the show either, and at intermission I told my wife I was going home. She said, Stay. Maybe it'll get better. At the top of Act 2, the theater manager announced, The role of Evan Hansen, played by Jordan Fisher, in Act 1 will be played by Ben Ross in Act 2. It's a bad show when even Evan Hansen walks out of Dear Evan Hansen. I don't know why, but I love leaving a bad show at intermission. It's like, I'll show them. I'll pay full price, but only watch half a show. Walking out of shows is my favorite form of protest and my main source of exercise. A recent case was Socrates, a play starring the talented but unfortunately named Michael Stuhlbarg. It was a new play written by one of the stars of the Scooby-Doo movies. This was going to be fresh, not some faux Shakespearean drama. 
Uh-oh. Drain your flagons, men! For in battle we'll quaff only blood! Ho-ha! My lance is hard and sharp, my lord. Thy mistress hopes thy loins are! Ho-ha! Oh boy. I was in for three more hours of this. To make matters worse, this is one of those plays where Socrates kept leaving the stage and sitting in the audience, right next to me. I left at intermission and Socrates was bound to notice. When my wife finally got home after the show, I asked her what I missed. Socrates took a bath on stage. Anything else? Then he killed himself. Wow, he took my leaving pretty hard. Ho-ha! The last straw for me, theatrically speaking, was a nasty little playwright named Neil LeBute. This man writes sensitive romantic comedies like Fat Pig, which the New York Post actually called one of his subtler efforts. One day a vendor tried to sell me tickets to Neil LeBute's latest play. I told him I found his work too misogynistic. The guy replied, Critics are calling this Neil LeBute's least misogynistic play ever. I said, wow. You should put that on the marquee. We did see the play. It opened with a married couple screaming at each other, and that's all they did for the next two hours. I thought, what am I doing here? I can get this at home. And that's when I decided to stop complaining about other people's plays and write one of my own. A romance as sweet as Neil LeBute was bitter, a comedy as funny as Christopher Durang wasn't. My play was 85 minutes long with no intermission, and it ended with the confetti cannon for no goddamn reason. The show went on to smash box office records. In Connecticut. Yes, Aunt Rose. The show played at Connecticut Rep, where it got rave reviews from all the critics. In Connecticut. And it went on to win every award a play can win. In Connecticut. You know, there's a lot of smart, sophisticated people in Connecticut. Yeah, they come in from New York on the weekends. My fake aunt is killing with my fake audience. The play I wrote featured a tough-talking Massachusetts guy with one line. In Boston, we call ice cream sprinkles jimmies. Who the hell is Jimmy? Every night the actor would end that speech. Who's the hell is Jimmy? I liked it. It didn't make much sense, but it was good character. When the play finally closed, I checked the script. It was a typo. When you're a playwright, actors even do your typos. At last I understood theater. It's not fun to watch, it's fun to do. And I was a hot writer with a hit play. Then I met Morty Weinstock. He was an old guy I literally bumped into at JFK Airport. He looked me over. You write plays? Yeah, how'd you know? You got the look. Here's my card. Don't Google me. Of course, I Googled him immediately. Morty Weinstock was a mattress salesman who'd been accused of embezzlement and arson. In other words, a Broadway producer. Morty bought my play for $5,000, making me the highest paid playwright in America. He had me sign a contract, and then a second contract attesting that the first contract was valid. Morty never did anything with my play. He also never paid me a cent. I literally bumped into him again ten years later at the Friars Club. I was now a cold writer with a forgotten play. You write plays? Yes, I write plays. 
You bought one for me and never paid me. Yes, I did. No, you didn't. I paid you half. You paid me zip. And you get paid when the play's produced. That's not how it works. We didn't have a contract. We had two contracts. All right, you got screwed. And now it's time for Mike's bonus beef. I'm interrupting my own podcast for a special announcement. One day after I recorded this episode, I saw the worst play I ever sat through in my life. It was called The Daughter-in-Law by D.H. Lawrence, and it was so bad, even D.H. Lawrence hated it. He wrote it, then he shoved it in a drawer, and there it stayed for the next 80 years. Then some off-Broadway idiot decided to stage it, and this off-Broadway idiot decided to go see it. It was like a Neil LeBute play. Two hours of coal miners screaming at their long-suffering wives. What made this truly painful was that they screamed with thick, impenetrable accents. What accent were they doing? All of them! Scottish, Cornish, Welsh, Klingon. It didn't matter what they said as long as the crowd couldn't understand a word. When I left the theater at intermission, I saw a big chunk of the small audience was leaving right behind me. It was the largest mass exodus of Jews since the Book of Exodus. All right, that's enough complaining for one week. And Rose. What am I doing here? Was written and performed by my nephew Nike Race. It was produced by John Sparilla, featured by Janice Rice, Trevor Morris, Mike Spiney Dorman, and me, Anna Hasapoglu, as Anne Rose. <laughs>